Hello. Thank you for downloading this Downtown Hope Sermon Podcast. We're a faith-based community in the city of Annapolis, Maryland, orienting our lives around Jesus and exist to see the people of our city, region, and world thrive with the hope found in his gospel. Now, please enjoy the sermon podcast. It has as many parables. And did you know parables are the parable of the Good Samaritan and the prodigal son? And those stories are only found in the gospel of Luke. Now, now those parables with their deep meanings or complex characters, you know, that's only for the first string preaching team, you know, uh, bench players like me, we don't get those kind of verses, but you know, David, it's okay. Um, um, actually, I believe God is actually in his providence has, has led me to preach on the, on these verses today from Luke chapter 17, because the focus is on two different subjects that I kind of wrestle with and that's forgiveness and obedience. And maybe some of you can relate to that as well. Um, you know, when I first read these texts, uh, we're going to explore today. This is the way I, what, this is the way I broke it down. All right, Jesus gives his disciples, not just one, but two nearly impossible commands to follow. And two, they answer back with what seems to be like a perfectly reasonable and logical request. But then Jesus answers them back by telling them two very short, but totally seemingly unrelated parables in answer to them. And number four was, oh crap, I got to do a sermon on this text. Why didn't David let me preach from the gospel, I mean, the prodigal son like I wanted to? <clears throat> uh, but after some you know, rereading of the text and really digging into the verses and, and, and really getting some great, excellent commentaries on this gospel, I had what my brother David called an aha moment. Uh, and that I came to this logical, but it's a very uh, unexpected conclusion on what I think Jesus is teaching here. Now, I want to be clear that not all the commentaries agree uh, what the actual message is here, but I feel more than comfortable um, with my findings. I think they're biblically sound, and I pray they're going to be useful for us as we press on in our walk uh, with Jesus. It's going to be like calisthenics day today because, you know, when June leads, you're, you're getting all pumped up. But I want everybody to stand up. Um, you know, Isaiah 55 talks about the word of God going out and not returning empty, but um, accomplishing its purpose. So I want to read over everyone today um, the words uh, of the text this morning. And these are the words that come directly from the, the, from the lips of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I believe they'll be on the back. There we go. Okay, it's Luke 17, verses 1 through 10. And he said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if he had a millstone hung around his neck and were cast into the sea than he should cause one of these little ones to stumble or to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he and if he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had the faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted into the sea, and it will obey you. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at the table? Or will he ra rather not say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterwards you can eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because of what he commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what is our duty. 
Amen. You can sit down. You know, I was going over to do this sermon. Um, I was going to skip actually verses one and two, but I was actually encouraged and challenged by the uh, theology team here to to include it. And I'm, I'm really glad they did. And due to time constraints, I really can't get into much detail. But I think what these verses show in one and two is God's extremely hardline view on the subject of sin. I think one of the great misconceptions about an old grandfather, you know, who views rebellion against his commands like, oh, well, you know, kids will be kids and it's no big deal. And come over here and let me give you some candy, you know. And if we've learned anything going through books uh, like Leviticus and Deuteronomy and stories like Lazarus and the rich man that David spoke on last week, we've learned the seriousness of the issue of sin between the creator and his creation. So this chapter starts with Jesus telling his disciples that temptations are sure to come, but woe to the one whom they come. I read that. I thought Jesus was really kind of just talking about, you know, the big sinners here, like heads of mafia groups or those involved in sex trafficking rings or, you know, especially when he says later that he's really concerned of the effect that this would have on little ones. And little ones here could actually mean those young in age, or it could be those who are just young in faith. But the word he uses here for sin in these verses means to set a stumbling block in front of somebody. It's an offense that's made against someone and an action in which that person takes offense to, and it leads that person to sin. Well, who in this, who in this room, you know, either knowingly or unknowingly, have, has never done that to another person? So this woe is to all of us. This hyperbole that Jesus uses about tying a 3,000-pound stone on your neck and being tossed into the sea, I think paints a very clear picture of humanity's sinful condition before a very holy God. And all of us, we all stand guilty, and we're doing nothing but the just punishment that awaits us. And so with this as a backdrop, I want to focus now on verses 3 through 10. First, I want to look at this impossible command that Jesus gives about forgiveness in verses 3 and 4. And I'm going to spend most of my time here because there's just so much in these verses. It starts with just the the first few words. We read from the English Standard Version, which says, pay attention to yourselves. Some of the other translations say, be alert or be careful or be on your guard. And there's an idea of being ready, of readiness, of potential danger that's ahead. But I really like the way the ESV translates this. It's like Jesus is saying, okay, I have something to tell you guys. And when you go to carry this out, don't look around, don't look at other people, just worry about yourselves. I feel like I can, I can just drop the mic here and walk away, because there's a sermon right here in four words. Pay attention to yourself. Now listen, as a family of God, when it comes to, you know, we want to keep each other accountable, we want to be there for, in times of need for sure. However, if we just, in our striving to carry out the commands of the Lord, we should just pay attention to ourselves. Reminds me of Jesus' teaching on the sermon um, in the Gospel of Matthew when he says, Why do you take this, see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite, take the log out of your own eye, then you'll be able to clearly take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now, I want to look now at what Jesus is saying we should pay attention to. I think there's several words in here we really need to define very well to get the understanding of this, of this verse. First, Jesus says, if your brother sins, 
And that the implication here is he's sinning against you. What does it mean if your brother sins against you? My first thought when I looked at that was, you know, sinning against me, that must, it, it must mean something that's deliberate, something they do on purpose. It must be something significant, you know, like, like a serious breaking of one of the Ten Commandments, like, you know, murder or stealing or, 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 or coveting my possessions. But again, listen to Jesus, what he taught his disciples on the Sermon on the Mount about this. He said, you have heard it said of those of old, you shall not murder, but whoever, will, uh, but whoever um, murders will be liable for judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable for judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable for the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So like we discussed in verses 1 and 2, I believe Jesus is saying here that any offense, word or in deed, that's done against somebody is sin against that person. And as we have said before, that can just mean just about anything. And that's why this, this command is so difficult, if not impossible, to keep. Another term to consider in this verse is, uh, verse is the word brother. So I, I took that to mean, you know, do we have a question here? Do, does this mean a, an offense against anybody? Or does this just mean follower if you offend somebody who's a follower of Jesus? And I really didn't find any kind of clear indication when I scoured the commentaries, but I believe you can make an argument for either of those views. Uh, first, it might mean we're supposed to forgive anybody in this fashion, as we alluded to before in, when we tied it into verses 1 and 2. But then Jesus belabors this point about forgiveness where he, where he says, if somebody sins against us seven times, in one day, which of course does not mean just seven times, it means no matter how many times, no matter how often the offense is done. And um, so I can't even fathom that someone who claims to be a follower of Jesus could actually repeatedly sin against somebody in that fashion, can you? I'm gonna get back to that a little bit later. On the other side of the coin, I can see the argument that this command is really kind of is limited to those who are in the family of faith. And I say this because he uses the word repent which is a subject really relatable only to those who truly, truly understand the concept of sin and, the, and it's really the crux of the whole gospel message. My takeaway from these verses is that Jesus wants us to take this course of action with everybody that we meet, but it should hold especially true for people within the family of God. Jesus says in John chapter 13, a new commandment that I give you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, you should also love one another. It's by this that all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And I think the same thing should be said and should be seen by people as we, disciples of Jesus, forgive one another. Now, I'm not, I'm not claiming a word of knowledge here for anyone in particular, but my sense is there might be people in this room or people who are listening at home who, who have experienced an offense from somebody in the family of God. And there hasn't been proper forgiveness either given or received. And I want to say that today this message is, is for you. But I think what Jesus is do doing here, he's laying out a plan for if you find yourself in this predicament. It's a chain of events that are linked together that we must follow to carry out this command to forgive, which you will actually see starts with a totally separate command first, something we must do first. Follow the logic with me. In verse 3, he says, If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. The sinning part's given. We, we know that, realizing that we live in a fallen world is laid out here in verses 1 and 2. So it's not if, but when that happens, when somebody offends you, Jesus commands us to rebuke that person. So what does rebuke mean? 
a worldly definition, uh, these are the synonyms that I, had, I found for the word rebuke that kind of go from kind of neutral to somewhat very negative. To rebuke somebody means to admonish, to reprimand, to reprove. That kind of sounds nice. But what about these words? Are we to berate, castigate, belittle, ridicule? I found the best biblical definition I think I found is that for rebuke, it's to correct or to instruct. And this is probably my main point today, so this is where I want you to listen up. <laughs> a proper Christian rebuke always, always has an eye towards the good of the person, but we'll also find that it's also good for the ter person who's doing the rebuking as well. So when a person sins and a proper rebuke is carried out, it should lead to these next two links in this chain. And Jesus says, if he repents, forgive him. Now we need to define those two words. If we believe that this call for, uh, of Jesus, a command on our lives is to forgive anyone that offends us, then the word repent here can't mean that a person has saving knowledge of Jesus Christ as Lord before we forgive him first. So where we're called to follow a biblical definition for the word rebuke, I think we should follow a more worldly definition when it comes to repent in this manner. And repent simply means to feel or express sincere regret or remorse about one's wrongdoing. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're probably thinking the same thing I was. All right, if somebody's going to offend me numerous times in the same day, there's no way that their repentance was sincere, so I don't have to forgive them. Is that right? I have four words for you in response to that question. You know what they are? Pay attention to yourselves. It's not our job to determine sincerity. Jesus is calling us as his disciples to do our part in this sinning, rebuking, repenting, forgiving chain. As a matter of fact, one commentary I, I saw, it asked the question, it probably came to your mind as well. What if a person never chooses to repent? Do we still have to forgive them? And this is what David Guzik said when, in his commentary on these verses. He said, even if relationship cannot be restored because no common mind is arrived at, we can still choose to forgive them on our part and wait for the work of God in their life for the restoration of the relationship. Clearly, in light of these words that are follow, which is forgiving them numerous times in the state, Jesus did not intend for us to narrow our focus on forgiveness. If anything, his intent is to broaden our work of forgiveness. He wasn't giving us a reason to, be, uh, to not forgive or to even be less forgiving. So the next logical question is, what does it mean to forgive? Well, I was surprised by this first definition I found, which said to stop feeling angry or resentful towards someone for an offense, a flaw, or a mistake. Now, I first read that, and it kind of seemed okay at first glance. But if there is one thing I've learned in over 39 years of marriage, is you never, and I mean never, tell someone to stop feeling a certain way. <laughs> <laughs> so I kept looking for other words and phrases here, and I, and I found this. Oh, that, that really struck a chord, I think. Uh, <laughs> Um, here's some other words that I found for forgive. It means to pardon, to excuse, to exonerate, to absolve, to acquit, to cancel an indebtedness or a liability, to no longer hold that offense against another. If you look at these words, they all kind of have somewhat of a legal connotation to them. So once this action of forgiveness is given, 
the person, the offended party no longer has any legal standing to get anything else from the offender or the person who repented. From a Christian perspective, I think this means that we should turn over all ramifications of this offense that's been done to us and turn it over to God. But we are, not, we are no longer allowed to hold on to this offense against that person any longer. All right, I want to tell you what forgiveness is not. To be clear, it is not a command to return to the exact relationship that you had experienced before the offense happened. If somebody swindles your investment money and they sincerely repent of that, you must forgive them. That's for sure. That's clear from Scripture. But you're not, you don't have to go and reinvest more money with them afterwards. If you are in a, an abusive relationship, either one verbally or physically or even both, you must forgive that person, but you're not required to return to be in relationship with that person even if they, if, even if they repent. If these are the commands that Jesus meant and he had in mind today, um, I think you can see why I stated that they were nearly impossible to carry out on our own accord. So the disciples were correct when he said, Lord, increase my faith. And this is where I think the story gets a little interesting for me anyway. I want to say there's absolutely nothing wrong with asking God to give you more faith. Um, I think it was Charles Stanley, I remember him saying, thought the two words that God loved to hear more than any other words from his people were the two words, I can't. Because it, it, it showed our total dependence on the Lord, not only for salvation, but for justification as well. So when, it's so interesting that the, when the disciples said, Lord, increase our faith, this is how Jesus answered them, with a one-sentence parable. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. I really don't think Jesus is chastising the disciples here. I don't think he's telling them that their faith is so small, it's even smaller than a mustard seed. But I think Jesus is giving two valuable lessons to his disciples. And first is the size of the faith isn't as important as the object of your faith. You know, the disciples had faith in Jesus for sure and, and, and who he claimed to be. The direction of their faith was correct which meant that the amount of their faith really wasn't the issue here in carrying out great things for God. If you can turn, have a tree be uprooted and planted into the sea with just the size of a mustard seed. You know, this object of your faith being important reminds me of the old adage, it's better to have a little faith while you're skating on thick ice than have a lot of faith while you're skating on thin ice. And secondly, what Jesus is telling his disciples in this command is to forgive, uh, in this command to forgive anybody that they come in contact with, it's not really a faith issue. It's something else. And the answer to it can be found in this second, rather harsh sounding parable that he tells them. Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to them when he comes in from the field, come on in and at once and recline at the table? Will he rather not say to him, prepare supper for me, dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and then afterwards you guys can eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because what he, what, it, what he did with what he commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say we are on nothing but unworthy servants and we have only done what is our duty. Again, I feel that the need here to start with what this parable is not teaching. 
we shouldn't take away from here that God looks on us as nothing but no more low down, good for nothing servants, and as, as if he's some kind of ruthless tyrant who doesn't care about his people. That would contradict everything that we find in scripture about the character of God. All we need to do is recall the parable of the prodigal son, the one that David didn't let me preach on. <clears throat> you know that story and the, the father, you know, and nobody, nobody was offended more than that father who had a young son come and say, I want nothing to do with you. I'm out of here. Give me. So this father was so offended, but what does he do? From day one, he's out scouring the horizon, just looking for that, you know, that, that disobedient and obstinate and stinking from his sin son to return home. And we, when he just barely sees him in, in, in the, in the, in the off, you know, he just, he, what do he do? He runs to him. He runs to him. He starts putting, pouring affection upon him with showers him with kisses and he restores him immediately back to this position as, you know, within the family. And then he throws him a party on top of that. I contend that this, this, this parable here of what's called the unworthy servant, which I would like to call the undeserving servants, the disciples don't need more faith to carry out this chain of command to forgive people. They just need to be obedient to the command of God. I don't know how many times it's happened to me, I've reluctantly done something that the Bible says to do and find out, well, you know, the Lord then rewards me and you know, either physically or with peace of mind just for carrying out what he said to do. It happens all the time with me. Disciples here, I think, put the cart before the horse. I think what Jesus is saying is don't wait for more faith before you carry out the commands of the Lord. Just obediently do your due duty. And guess what? The result will be more faith in his character. Here's the catchphrase that you can remember that kind of sums all of this up today. Obedience to God breeds more faith in God. You know, I had two scenes from some of my favorite movies came to my mind as I was looking at all of these verses. Um, and uh, the first is uh, Forrest Gump. I guess everybody's seen that movie. And you remember when, when Forrest first joins the army and he goes into the barracks the very first day and that drill sergeant gets right up in his grill, you know, and he's screaming at him saying, Gump, what is your sole purpose in life? And Forrest just yells right back at him to do whatever you tell me to do, drill sergeant. <clears throat> And the officer just you know, lauds him for this, 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 um, you know, this excellent answer. You know, he says to the whole outfit, what a great answer this was. And remember, a little while later, they're assembling the rifles, right? And, and, and uh, uh, Forrest's best friend Bubba is there assembling his rifle, and he's talking about shrimp boating, you know, and he's kind of doing his thing. And Forrest is there looking, you know, and boom, boom, at the task at hand. He's, he's getting it done, getting it done. Of course, he finishes it and throws it down, and he says, done, drill sergeant. And again, this officer comes over, gets right in his grill and says, Gump, why did you put this rifle together so fast? And Forrest looks up at him and somewhat puzzled. And he says, because you told me to, Drill Sergeant. <clears throat> and that's the kind of attitude I think we should have in service for the Lord. You know what? If that's the way that God wanted this, what things to be, for us just to have blind dedication you know, from his undeserving servants like us, that would be sufficient for us. We got some I, I've never been in the military, but I assume that there's some kind of certainty and there's a security in knowing your place within a large organization. But we serve a God that's much, much more than a supreme being to whom duty is expected. No, we serve a God who loves us beyond all measure. 
My favorite Bible verse is 1 John 3, 1. How great is the love that the Father has lavished, poured upon us extravagantly. How much he's lavished on us that we get to be called the children of God. And that is what we are. This idea of the love of God brings me to a next, the next thing I want to talk about. And the worship team, I guess they can start making their way back up now if you want. Um, this scene comes from my favorite all-time movie, The Princess Bride. <laughs> has there been anybody in here who has never seen this movie? Okay, okay, good. Was that right? <laughs> so The Princess Bride, remember Buttercup, the heroine at the very beginning of the, of the story. Um, and uh, this is before she became princess, actually. Um, and she hires the farm boy, Wesley. And she orders him around, you know, with such things like, shine up my saddle. I want to be able to see my face tomorrow morning. And as she does this, you know, with this and every other kind of seemingly degrading command that she gives to him, um, uh, you know, it seems that butter, this command that she gives, but Wesley answers every request with the same three words. What does he say? As you wish. And the narrator of the movie says that with the utterance of this phrase, buttercup understands more and more what Wesley was, he's really saying isn't as you wish, but that I deeply, deeply love you. So you want to be more obedient to the commands of God? Don't ask for more faith. The trick is to fall in love with Jesus. And how do we do that? We learn more and more about him by reading, reading his word. We let that redemptive plan that the Father devised to reconcile us, us sinful, undeserving servants, back to himself by the sacrificing of his one and only begotten Son. And we let that wash over us every day. We communicate with him, you know, through prayer, both by speaking and by listening for that still small voice. You join in fellowship and you join in service and you join in worship with him, with others who feel the same way that you do. So you can encourage them and even at times, maybe even rebuke and forgive them when they go astray. If you do this, it will be easy to say and to really mean, I am nothing but an undeserving servant of the almighty God. And it is a, both a privilege and an honor to do my duty because of his great love for me and my great love for him. Thank you.